First John chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, and he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try or test or prove the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world." You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been two things that have always been extremely prevalent and extremely present amongst the believers of God. And number one is deceivers and deception. The great asset uh, or... or um, you know, grace of the church and what we've been given by Jesus Christ is that of truth. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said that the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. That is, that what we are and what we represent is, is the foundation. The pillar is something that holds something up or bears something up. The ground is something that holds whatever is resting securely upon it. And what Paul says is that we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. And that's what Jesus came to represent. He said, I am the truth. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus, when he came, that he was full of grace and truth. And so Jesus came to give us truth. That's the asset that we possess, and it's what we're called also to give away. Now, if the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light is represented by truth, then if there is an opposing kingdom or an enemy or adversary of that kingdom, then his desire is going to be to bend the truth in some way and to bring deception in so as to cause the truth to become ineffective or to cause it to become without profit or without power in some way if he can do that. And he has been extremely tireless in his effort to seek to bring deception into the church even from the very beginning, and he has been successful. There is no shortage, nor has there ever been, nor will there ever not be a shortage of deception uh, amongst the people of God and in the world. The other thing that's been prevalent in the church from the very beginning is naivety. I don't know if I'm saying that word right, but uh, the, 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 the tendency for Christians to be naive, that is to be very deceivable people. And because we're dealing with truth and truth is something that is intangible and invisible, therefore it's something that we can't see, we can't touch. And so uh, we have a tendency to be deceived. Um, we Christians, if we see something that has a cross on it, we immediately seek to attach ourselves to it and say, oh, look, there's a cross that is Christian. Or if something has a fish, you know, that uh, symbol that has represented Christianity for so many hundreds of years now. You know, we see that fish that someone's wearing on a necklace or on a T-shirt or on a sticker or on their door front or something or on their church. We think, oh, that is Christian because it has the symbol that has always represented traditional Christianity. Also, if something says the name Jesus, if somebody says, God bless you, you know, we're so quick to think, oh, that person is a believer. Did you hear what they just said? They just said, God bless you. Or when they prayed for a meal, they pray in Jesus' name. Or in some way they say that I believe in Jesus. Or they have Jesus written on their clothing or, or in some way in their home, somewhere. And, and when we see that, all of a sudden our guard comes down. And, and we have a tendency as Christians to just, we, we throw off all 
uh, discernment, all, you know, anything at that point. And if it says Jesus, if it has a cross on it, something, they're in. <laughs> You're acceptable in the whole thing. And so because of that, because of those two things, deception and the tendency for Christians to be naive, deception has always been a problem amongst Christians, and John knows that it's something that is absolutely prevalent in his day, and as he is about to go home and be with Jesus, it's in his heart that we be on guard to the best of our ability against our being deceived in whatever ways that we can. Now, in John's day, when he was writing this letter, the great deception or the great lie that was prevalent was that, that something that was called Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism essentially taught is that there is a division between the spiritual portion of man and the physical portion of man. And so the spiritual portion of man or the part that relates to God is good. And everything spiritual in the life of man is good. But everything physical in the life of man has nothing to do with God. It relates only to this world, and therefore it is irrelevant what we do with our physical bodies because they relate only to this world. And so what the Gnostics did in, in their teaching and in their belief system or in this dividing of the spirit and the, and the physical of man is that they made a way for themselves to justify their conscience before God, making themselves feel like they were right with God and that, that he accepted their person. But at the same time, they could retain their carnal lifestyle. They could live according to the sins and passions and desires of their body without any feeling of guilt or consciousness because that didn't matter to God. It was completely separate. And so as a part of that teaching, they taught that even when Jesus came, he only came as a spiritual apparition. He didn't come physically or in the flesh but rather he just came as a spirit. He was an apparition. And, and therefore, because he was not physical, he didn't have to deal with the temptations and the difficulties of living in the flesh. And so what they did is they removed that part of Jesus' whole existence. He didn't have to bear temptation. He didn't even leave a footprint when he walked and the whole thing. And so he was just spirit. And since Jesus didn't even have to, to know the, the weight and the, and the feeling of temptation and the power of it, he can't reasonably expect me to have to be free from the weight and the power of temptation. And so he allows me to just go on living in that way. That was what Gnosticism essentially taught for those that were deceived by it in John's day. And so the teachers of Gnosticism, those whom John here would label as false prophets because of the teaching that they were propagating, which was deceptive and false, what they were doing is that they were capitalizing on the deceivableness or the naivety of the Christians in their day in order to exercise their authority over them and then also to extract from them. They would gather adherents or congregants unto themselves, and then they would become supported through the gifts and the support of those people, and thus they were using deceptive means or false doctrines to deceive Christians into supporting them and elevating them and propagating them. They were false prophets with a false spirit giving false teachings to genuine people that otherwise had no idea that they were being deceived. And so the result of all of this is that in John's day, there was a whole group of quote-unquote Christian people, some sincere and some completely deceived, that were, that were lied to, that were broke, that were unhelped in their spiritual condition, and in most cases, completely unsaved. And in that John was a true representative of the true and the living God who came to seek and to save that which was lost, that bothered him. And so he now writes to this group of Christians to, to, to seek to keep them from being deceived, and he gives to them and also to us the solution so as that it doesn't happen to us. And it comes in a very simple way. He gives us a command. And that command is that we're not to believe every spirit but we are to test the spirits to see whether they be of God. 
Now, though today the false teaching is not Gnosticism, the false teachings or the deceptions of today are very similar to those in John's day in that they are intended by the devil to bend the truth just enough so they can find a way in the mind of a human being to make them feel justified in their conscience before God and what they believe, but at the same time to live their life the way that they want to, not according to the way that God says it is to be lived. So there's just enough truth to make a person feel like things are valid, but there's enough deception in the whole thing to make the thing completely false. And then the false prophets and the false teachers of today take and use those false doctrines to exercise authority over people and then also to enrich themselves and to elevate their own positions. And so the solution that John gives to you and me against the deceptions of our time is that we're to test the spirits and we're to see whether or not they are from God. Now, the word test that John uses there in verse 1 in his command that he gives to us literally means that we are to judge. And one of the reasons why Christians have a tendency to be as naive as we are is because we, we, we take seriously something that Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, Je Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. And oftentimes, anytime a Christian seeks to evaluate and to weigh the, 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 the truth or the verity of something that someone believes or something that someone says, you know, we're either triggered in our mind, well, am I judging? Or we're confronted with the words of whoever it is that's talking to us that says, hey, 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 judge not, lest ye be judged. And immediately, most of us, we back right down. We go, yeah, well, Jesus did say that, didn't he? And he told us that we're not to judge. Well, it's interesting to me that in the same chapter wherein Jesus told us that we are not to judge, he also told us that we are to judge. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 15, I want you to listen to what Jesus commands you and I. He says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Meaning everything by outward appearance is going to look valid. You're going to see the cross. You're going to hear the word Jesus. You're going to, everything is going to be there to let your guard down. But what's under the surface where you cannot see, there is a ravening wolf that's seeking to take something from you and to devour you. And then Jesus gives us the command and the answer. He says, you shall know them by their fruits. The word know that Jesus uses, the Greek word krino, it's also translated judge. In other words, Jesus says, you will judge them by their fruits. That is that Jesus is giving to you and I a command that when we're in the presence of a prophet or a teacher or a pastor or even a spirit, be it over a ministry, over a radio program, over a book, over a song or a band or a Christian concert or program, that we are called to keep our spiritual antennas of discernment up and we are to judge whether or not that ministry, that message, that prophet, that pastor, that church is actually being governed, directed, and filled by the Spirit of God, whether or not there's another spirit that has gotten in that is driving and dictating the forces that are going on in that spiritual environment. And here's what Jesus says. He says that you will know them or judge them, discern them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? In other words, if you see a bramble bush, you wouldn't expect that in the fall harvest vintage season, you're going to find grapes in abundance growing from that bramble bush. Or if there was a thistle growing in your yard, you wouldn't come lift up the leaf of that thistle and hope to find a fig during the time of figs. It wouldn't make sense to you because the fruit is sought according to the appearance of the plant. So Jesus says this in verse 17. He says, even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, 
but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. And here's the rule. Here's our salvation. Here's why no Christian ever need be deceived. He says, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. That's the law of the kingdom as given by Jesus. A good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. And we are called to look at the fruit of a ministry when it is that we are evaluating or weighing out the quality or the source of, 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 of something. That's the rule that's given to us. You say, well, what exactly is fruit then that we're to look for when it is that we're seeking to evaluate or test the spirits? Well, according to what John writes to us, in his endeavor to keep us from being deceived, John gives us two tests or two things, two areas of fruit that we are to look for in a particular environment to evaluate whether or not it is truly from God or whether it is from somewhere else. What are they? Number one, the first test that John gives to us is that we're to ask the question, what do they do with the person of Jesus Christ? Whether it's a pastor a person sharing with us that's asking us to believe something or to consider something, a prophet who's seeking to give to us a message, a book that we find in a Christian bookstore that someone recommends for us to read, a, 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 a venue of Christian music or a source of Christian music, whatever it is, the first question that every one of us is to ask is where do they place the person of Jesus Christ in his prominence in his proclaimment of himself and of his person in their ministry. John tells us this in verse um, 2 and, and 3. He says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. This is how you know if it's of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever you've heard that it should come, and that even now it is in the world. What do they do with the person of Christ? And when you're evaluating someone's position concerning the person of Christ, there are three things that you want to think about or to be considering. Number one is what do they believe concerning what the Bible says about the person of Jesus Christ? That is his incarnation. The fact that the Bible says that he would be virgin born. His deity. The fact that the Bible ascribes to him the title and the position of God himself. Everything that he says about the fact that he came in the flesh and that he walked among us, that he dwelt among us. Like John said, that our hands have handled him of the word of life. What do they believe concerning everything that the Bible says about his physical person? Is it in line with scripture, very practically and foundationally? Now, what you'll find with many of the cults, many of those that are openly deceptive, is that they fail the test right here. That was the case with the Gnostics. They denied the fact that Jesus actually came in the flesh. He was just a spirit, an apparition. Well, John would say, well, right away, you know that they're false. What about the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or some of these other side groups that have clung on to the name of Jesus Christ, but have changed broad swaths of the doctrines that we believe. Well, they take from Jesus his place of deity, and they make him simply an angel or something less than God. He's the counterpart of Satan, or the friend of Michael, the archangel. But he's not God. In some way, he's less than God. Well, all of a sudden, automatically, for you and I, we must create distance and not allow them to call themselves biblical Christians. Because what they're teaching, believing, and leading others into is a lie that ultimately cannot save them. So what do they, first of all, believe about the very nature of Jesus and who the Bible sets him forth to be? But secondarily, and more subtly concerning the person of Christ is what does that prophet or that ministry believe about the prominence and the authority and the position that Jesus is to have within a life or within a church or within a ministry? The Bible says that he is Lord of all. 
The Bible says that he is the chief shepherd. The Bible says that he is the head over all things to the church and that he's far above all principality and power and rulers of the darkness of this age. Jesus said that it's upon this rock that I will build my church. He's the architect and the head foreman of that which constructs and that which would make the church what it is. Jesus is the one that says that he began a good work in our lives and that he's going to finish it unto the day of completion, unto the day of grace. So all things are of him, through him, and for him. Therefore, his place of prominence is that he is to be the Lord of all. He's to be over all. He's to be the governor and the ruler, the one who is sought, the one who is elevated. Jesus would say of himself that if I be lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. That even as Moses raised a serpent upon a pole, that whosoever would look upon it would be saved, so also will the, the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever would look upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. So does a prophet, a ministry, something, some spirit that's seeking to bring us closer to God, does it elevate the person of Christ? Does it give him his proper place of prominence and lordship and shepherdhood? Or does it draw attention to itself? Paul the Apostle would write to the church in Colossae. And Paul would say to them in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over every creature. That by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him. And for him. And he is before or preeminent or above all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And in any ministry or any place that is supposing to be the spirit of God or to represent God in any way, if Jesus Christ is not central, if he is not Lord, if he is not elevated and put forth in the highest place and in the highest way, then you and I ought to be skeptical about, skeptical about the origin, the motive, and the reason behind that ministry and if any good can come out of it at all. Even things that claim to be under the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is to be put forth first. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, John wrote to the Christians there, and John said, Oh, goodness. Post-it notes are the best thing in the world. And the absence of them is pure agony. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 12, he said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, that's a great verse for a false prophet to, to cling on to, isn't it? And say, see, there's new things that need to be revealed that Jesus didn't reveal yet because they couldn't hear it. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he will hear, that will he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, here's how you'll know it's the Spirit of God. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and will show it unto you. All things that the Father has are mine, their, mine. therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So even the Spirit of God is not going to draw attention to itself. Mind that, those of you that are fans of many of the programs on TBN, wherein the Holy Spirit is constantly drawing attention to himself, as it were, in the things that are happening. No, 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 no. That's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point to, elevate, and glorify Jesus Christ, even as it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, that he would have the preeminence 
and that he would be the Lord and ruler of all things. And so how does a prophet, a ministry, or a spirit treat the prominence, authority, and position of Jesus Christ? He is to be the head, the Lord, the Savior, and the shepherd in all things. The third way in which Jesus is examined or, or the place of Jesus is examined within a ministry or in a prophet or a spirit of something is in the personal devotion that that leader or that ministry has toward the person of Christ himself. Jesus said in John chapter 15, and it's a scripture that many of us are familiar with. He said, I am the vine and you are the what? The branches. That's right. Now, if you think about the relationship between a branch and a vine, a branch is extremely attached to and dependent upon the vine out of which it grows. It draws all of its life and all of its resources out of that vine. The second you detach that branch from the vine, the branch begins to die because on its own it can do absolutely nothing unless it's attached to the vine. So if a spirit or a prophet or a teacher or anything else is of God then it must be attached to the vine that is Christ. And anything that is attached to the person of Christ ought to bear the resemblance, the aroma, and the appearance that the vine itself has. You would never expect to see, like, you know, birch bark growing out of a grapevine. You know, if you saw that, that would, that would puzzle you a little bit. You'd say, well, that is some botanist that can graft that kind of a thing into that. You know, that just doesn't fit at all. You would expect it to look or appear or smell or bear forth in some way something similar. In the same way, when you come into the presence of a place or a person or you're reading a book or listening to something on the radio and there's something inside that very simply says, you know what? I know Jesus. That's not Jesus then that's a very good reason that you should inside question and say, is that actually from God? My wife and I, a couple of days ago, we had a chance to go up north and spend a little bit of time um, up in the Adirondacks. And on a particular um, moment, we were walking down a trail. And there's an amazing thing that happens up there. I don't know if it's just me or, or, or if someone else can, can kind of say amen to this, but you know, you can kind of just be, you know, above a certain elevation and you're kind of away from, from all things and you're just kind of walking along and you're not talking and you're maybe even a little bit tired and you, there, there's just a silence, but all of a sudden you'll breathe in a breath of air. And, and there's just a thought that comes into your mind and a conversation begins. And so we started just talking, my wife and I, just kind of out of the blue. There was almost like this wind. There was almost a spirit, if you would. And it just came over us, and we just began to talk about the things of God between us. And we began to talk about ministries that we have uh, observed and watched over the course of our almost 20 years in the faith, and the things that we've seen in those that have proven to be uh, good trees and those that have proven to be bad trees. And so we talked a little bit about the Billy Graham organization and how Billy Graham has been able throughout his ministry to um, just hold such an amazing standard and never have a scandal attached to his name, never have something that needs to be cleaned up or swept under a rug. But what we were marveling at is that there's so few of those, is that there's so few ministries that can make it through a whole lifetime and that can make it to that place where at the end you can say that from the very beginning all the way to the very end, it represented God in a very clean and very pure and very perfect way. And as we just continued talking about this more and more, we began to talk about, well, what is it that makes a ministry bear that fruit over that period of time? And what we, we came to is that it comes down to three things. It comes down to holiness. I wrote them down because I knew I'd forget when I, once I said three things. You know, about holiness, integrity, and consistency. To be genuinely holy, that is that I'm not going to let anything attach itself to my life that in any way is going to corrupt me or corrupt the ministry in any way. Integrity is that all things are going to be open and on the up and up so that no one's ever going to be able to point and say that there was misgivings or misdeeds in the way that this was done. And then number three, consistency is to be able to hold on to those two things throughout the course of an entire ministry, even if it spans as long as an entire lifetime to hold on to holiness and to hold on to integrity and then to do that with consistency. 
But that's not enough. It's that all three of those things are birthed out of a genuine devotion and love to Jesus Christ. Because those things can't survive unless that's where they come from. And the reason why the Billy Graham organization and a few others that have been like him that, that we've been able to see and be a part of or, or whatever else or observe, that's been the thing that has made them what they are is that they take Jesus for who the Bible says that he is. They have given him his place as the Lord, leader, and shepherd, and they have maintained a place, a relationship of love and devotion to him. And anytime you and I are going to successfully prove and test and see whether a spirit is from God, that's what we're looking for in that ministry. Is Jesus in his proper place in that ministry, and in the lives of the people that are leading that ministry, and in the spirit that's governing that ministry. And so that's the first test that John gives to us there, is what do they do with the person of Christ? The second test that he gives to us, and don't worry, we're not going any further than verse 6 tonight. (laughs) We're already more than halfway done with this Bible study, you know. I know you're saying, yeah, right, I'll believe that when I see it, you know. (laughs) But the second test that John gives to us Uh, and and that how we're to prove or to test or try the Spirit to see whether they be of God, is that we're to ask the question is, where do they stand in their relationship with the world? Not just with the person of Christ, but with their relationship to the world. John tells us in verse 5, he says that they, that is the deceiving spirit or the lying spirit, that it they are of the world. Therefore, because they're from the world, they speak of the world, and the world hears them. They're of the world, meaning that they have their origin, where that ministry or where that teaching comes from is not from heaven. It's not coming from God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. It's coming from the world. It is of the world. It has its origin of the world. Because its origin is in the world, it therefore speaks of the world. The message that's behind that spirit is a worldly message. And ultimately, the audience that that spirit obtains or that adheres to it is going to be a worldly audience because it resonates with where they also come from. And so the message of a false prophet will come from the world and it will bear one characteristic and that it comes from the world. Are you ready for it? It makes it very simple for you and I. It denies the cross. Any spirit that comes from the world is a spirit that denies the cross of Jesus Christ or detests detests it or despises it. That is the cross. When Jesus was with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, He asked them the question, who do men say that I am? And the answer came from Peter, the correct answer, when he said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter and he said, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, he has revealed this to you. And then Jesus said this, upon this rock, that is the Christhood of me, upon the rock of my messiahship, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then, right after that, right after Jesus says those words, Matthew tells us that Jesus began to show them or reveal to them how he must go to Jerusalem, how he must suffer, be rejected by the priests and by the elders, be crucified, and then rise again. And when Jesus began to talk to them about his crucifixion and rejection and the fact that he wouldn't be received as Messiah in Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that Peter took Jesus aside privately. He said, come here, get And he said, Jesus, that will be enough of this cross talk. <laughs> That's what Peter said to Jesus. Read it. And he said, far be it from you, Lord. You're not going to any cross and dying. You're the Savior. You're going to sit upon David's throne. We're going to sit on 12 other thrones with you. And we're going to get this whole thing cooking. You're not going there to be rejected and dying. That's a a negative confession. 
You're not to say those kind of things. You're to speak affirmative things, positive things, things that tend to life. And Jesus' response to Peter was profound. He looked him square in the eye. And as a father looks at his belligerent son, Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. For you savorest not the things which be of God, but the things which be of men. In other words, Peter, the message that you are preaching right now in your rejection of the cross has its origin in the world and among men and in the person of Satan himself. If I do not go to the cross and die, there is no salvation and there is no other way. And a Christianity that is preached void of the cross of Christ is a Christianity that is absolutely false. God forbid that I should glory, Paul would say, save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord by whom I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he have and take up not his cross, then he cannot be my disciple. The cross is a pivotal portion and part of the message that we preach. A false prophet and a false gospel will never accept the cross. Their message will only be health, wealth, success, possessions, happiness, and it will be all about you and how wonderful you are, and how much God loves you, and how much your blessing is waiting you, if you will just, and it's you, you, or me, 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 me. The worship songs in that church, it's all about me. Hallelujah. And you'll see, oh man, that is such, that is a powerful message. I sensed God there. And you know what John would say? Test the spirits, whether they be of God. Because there are many false prophets that have gone into the world, and the spirit of Antichrist is behind many of them. The gospel preaches the cross. The gospel preaches repentance. Paul would say to Timothy, let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. False prophet, worldly prophet will never tell you that you have to depart from iniquity. You can justify your iniquity. Paul would say to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, after talking about the works of the flesh, he would say that they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot retain your former lifestyle and expect that you will be received at heaven's gate. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, that they that are Christ's have crucified their flesh with its affections and its lusts. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make provision for my flesh or excuses for my flesh. It calls me to crucify my flesh and it gives me power by the Holy Spirit to make that choice and to do it, to repent of my sins. The life in Jesus Christ is a crucified life. Paul the Apostle would say in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, concerning himself, he would say that none of these things move me, that is the sufferings of my life. Neither do I count my life dear unto myself, but I have received or I will finish the ministry that God has given me to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He would say to another church in the book of Acts that it through must or Acts 14.22, that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. And the Christian life is oftentimes a life of suffering. Paul would say that I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung that I may win Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. To the Corinthians, Paul would write, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, that he was pressed beyond measure above strength and so much that he despaired even of life. To the Romans, Paul would say that we glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, experience, and hope, and ultimately the love of God working in our hearts. And Paul would speak concerning his own infirmities, that he would rather glory in his infirmities, that the power of Christ would rest upon him. Do you understand, Christian, 
that the gospel that we believed and the spirit that originates from heaven does not preach to us an easy life in this world, but it preaches us a savior and a salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and an eternity that is awaiting for us there. This world is not our home. What we are promised is salvation, eternal life, Holy Spirit presence and help, truth and light as our guide, a purpose and a place and blessing in God's will for our lives here and now, gifts and helps according to his provision and what we need while we await his return, access to God and answer to prayer, and joy, peace, and strength in spite of the difficulties that we live through in this time now. That's what we're promised. Not an easy life. But the question we're to ask is, what is the message and the relationship between that prophet, that spirit, that ministry, and this world? Does it receive it or does it abhor it? The Bible abhors it and it calls us to be crucified to this world and to live unto God. So here's the absolutes as we conclude tonight, the things that we can determine from this passage that are before us. And four things briefly for you to just jot down that John lays before us as absolute truth in our pursuit to judge all things wisely. Number one is that false prophets, false, pro false doctrines, and false spirits will always exist alongside the church of Jesus Christ. There will never be a day when Satan isn't in some way seeking to bend the truth and bring deception into the pews and amongst God's people. God uses those things for his glory to purify, to teach, to sift the wheat from the chaff, the believers from among the unbelievers, and to sharpen you and I so that we can understand and know what truth is. But those things will always seek to exist. Number two is that false prophets will not listen, nor will they ever listen to the truth of the Bible. Notice what John says in verse six. He says, we are of God and he that knows God hears us. He that is not of God does not hear us. Someone who is a false teacher will not listen to the truth of the Bible. That is why I personally will not argue with someone who is seeking to propagate a false doctrine. I'll talk to them for a moment, determine if they're willing to, to listen to the truth of God's word. But once it's determined that, no, this person isn't going to listen, then that's enough for me. They're not going to listen. They don't hear it. They can't hear it because they're deceived. Number three, absolute. That if a true Christian is genuinely deceived, then they will hear the truth of God's word and receive it because the spirit of God is in them. That's what John also says in verse six. He says, we are of God and he that knows God hears us. Meaning that if someone is truly wanting to know God, that the scripture is going to set them free from their deception because they're not going to stop their ears at it and say, no, I refuse to listen to you. You're the devil and you're trying to deceive me. They're going to say, no, 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 I want to know God. And the spirit of God is pulling on my heart and telling me that something's not right about this place or about this teaching or this book or whatever it is that I'm hearing. What is truth? And when truth is brought to that person's ears, it's going to resonate and they're going to hear it. And the result of that is going to be number four, is that the true Christian can and will overcome deception. Notice what John says in verse 4. He says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you have a genuine heart for God, then you don't have to live in deception or worry about the fact that one day you will be deceived by the deceivers. Here's the bottom line for you and I as we close that we close is that if you and I are to overcome the deceivableness of the days that we live in and the naivety that we have and that we have a tendency toward as Christians, then it is imperative for you and I that we judge, that we obey John's command and that we test the spirits to see whether or not they be of God. 
And what that means for you and, and I is two things. It means that, first of all, you and I must be, first of all, genuinely saved. Meaning that I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I have fully repented of my sins and of my former lifestyle. I have brought my sinful flesh to the foot of his cross and I've laid it down and I've asked him to crucify it there with him. And I'm not seeking to hold on to it or let it live side by side with a spiritual falsity of some form, but I've repented fully of what I am apart from him. And I've laid that at the foot of the cross and my life is completely vested in his kingdom. That must be true of me if I'm to be called an overcomer and one that won't be deceived by the spirit of Antichrist. I must be truly saved. And then secondarily, after that, I must have as a Christian a working knowledge of God's word. The Bible says in verse 2 that we know um, the Spirit of God. He said, hereby we know the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is always going to work upon or move upon the truth of God. And that is what's given to us in the Scripture. And so every Christian is called to have a working knowledge of the Word of God. It is not enough for you and I to know somebody who has a working knowledge of the Word of God. Well, I have a really good pastor, or I have access to people who really know the Bible, and so therefore when I have a question or when a need arises, I can just kind of filter it through them, and it removes me from needing to have my own working knowledge of the Word of God. No, 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 that's not going to cut it. Because God's desire and design for every one of His kids is that we have a network of truth that exists within our hearts and a lens through which we can look at the world around us and interpret all things that we see. And unless the word of God is a living, breathing part of my being, it's impossible for me to do that. It's not good enough for me to have an experience or to take something in, file it away, and say, I'm going to ask someone I know who's more knowledge of me about this. That's not going to cut it. It's not going to work. I need to have in my own life enough of God's word written upon my heart that when those things come in the moment that they come, I can say that's right or that's wrong. That doesn't jive with what God says. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? Satan came to him. Isn't it written? Man shall not live by bread alone. Just turn this into to bread. Or, you know, turn this into bread. And what did Jesus say? He said, it is written. And he had a working knowledge of the word of God wherein in the moment he knew what was right and what was wrong and he was able to base that off of the scripture. And it's important that you and I have an understanding of the scriptures. We must know and be familiar and that must be continually our endeavor to grow in the grace and the knowledge of him. The worship team can come. I, I would think that one of the worst feelings in life is that, is the worship team here? Worship team, you can come. Just Talking fast, you know, that kind of just blended with everything else. You don't want me leading out in solo to close if, if you're here, which is a, what's going to happen in just a minute. You know? but one of the worst feelings that can happen to a person is the moment that they realize that they've been lied to. The, the, the moment that they realize that they've been deceived. You know, sometimes you hear about a spouse and uh, they've been cheated on or violated in some way. And, and, and as they realize that that happened, you know, the horror and the pain that it is to realize that they've been lied to. But what's even worse than that is when, when all of the connections are being made and they realize that the truth was right in front of them the whole time and they were blind to it, that they should have seen it but they didn't see it. It was right there. And they kick themselves and they say, how stupid could I have been to have been lied to and treated this way and used and abused for this long and not to have known it in that way? What's even worse than that? Or what would be even worse than that is for a person to stand before Jesus Christ and to come to that moment when they're, they're, they're standing before him and to hear him say, depart from me, you that work iniquity, because I never knew you. And to realize that they lived their entire life thinking that they were a Christian, 
that they believed in something that justified their conscience enough to think that they were right with God, but gave permission enough to their old life enough that they were completely outside the boundaries of who the real Jesus is, and then to stand before them, before him, and to realize that they're going to spend an eternity in hell, and to think and to realize that that's so completely unnecessary because all along the truth was right in front of me. And I pray in Jesus' name that that does not happen to any single one of us that are sitting here this evening, that every one of us understand completely that not every spirit that says God, that says Jesus, that holds up a Bible, that wears a cross, that sings songs that are spiritual in nature, that those things are necessarily teaching truth. There is one Jesus, and the Bible tells us who he is. There is one salvation, and the way of that salvation is for you and I to come to the foot of the cross of our Savior and to say, Lord Jesus, in and of myself, I am sinful and I bring nothing to you. But I believe that what you did in laying down your life upon this cross was enough of a payment for my sin. And so I give you all that I am, and in return I receive the gift of all that you are. And may my life be nothing more than a reflection of your spirit lived through me. May I be a branch grafted into this vine. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord of all. And for us to believe anything else or to live anything else or to think that we can live a double life in some way and still be saved, we're deceived. We're deceived. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that it's not your heart that any of us should live in that life of deception. And so God, as John has taken to carefully write and preserve and tell us to test, we ask, O oh God, that you would equip us with those things. And if there's any of us here that are deceived, O oh God, I pray in Jesus' name that even tonight, that that spirit of conviction that you bring, that we're not living right, that we aren't right, O oh God, that you would make us right. So change us, help us, O oh God. And Lord, I pray that you would equip us to be those that have a working knowledge of the word of God, a right relationship with Jesus Christ, that we need not ever be ashamed before you at your coming. So help us, teach us, lead us. We make it our prayer and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?